0: Father, as we bow before your throne of mercy, we're so grateful we could have another Sabbath to honor you and to understand a little more of your word, that it might be a part of us in our lives as we go forward in this world, this world is getting more and more challenging for the believer. We pray that you'll continue to help us, guide us, help us in our families, help us stay true to the word, and help us reach out with the truth that you have given. We thank you for guiding us, Please be with those that have suffered loss this day, and that you would comfort them. And that we would continue on now in your word, and in this coming week, be a witness to all. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. You may be seated. You know, rocks, rocks are so common that we don't really pay much attention to them, unless we're maybe admiring the beauty of a rock formation or using them to enhance our uh, property, maybe, landscape with them, as we did on these premises. As you know, there's a lot of rocks everywhere. In fact, I picked one of those landscaping rocks up the other day and uh, thought I could use this as an illustration for my message. Now, I remember Yasha's promise that there would always be those faithful on the earth that would go forward with the truth, that it would never die out. Remember when he said to Peter, Matthew sixteen eighteen, and I'll say unto you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my assembly and the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. Of course, the rock metaphor was Peter's confession that Yahshua was the Messiah. And if you look hard enough, you can even see Peter in my rock. And if you can't, granddaughter Faith was good enough to use some of her talents to uh, show you what I call Peter in the rock. Peter's Confession. Now, this is not like J.C. and the taco thing. It's just, I just thought it was cool. It looked like a person in there. I said, hey, there's Peter. So, but there has never been a moment in time when Yahweh did not have his true covenant people here on earth showing the way of truth. Never. Never in history. Even during the Great Tribulation when the assembly is taken into the wilderness for three and a half years, there still will be two witnesses supernaturally given powers to represent and to forward the truth of Yahshua's return. Standing on the streets of Jerusalem, proclaiming Yahweh's name and truth. You find that in Revelation 11. Well, just as he had Moses and Aaron and many prophets standing firm during critical times, showing the way of Yahweh, Yahweh, Standing against the opposing tide, Yahweh's representatives will stand against Satan and the man of sin in these last days. And that is the crux of my message today. Being that Yahweh has always had his people somewhere throughout history means no one can use the excuse that the truth was not there. They just have to find it. They just have to look for it. Seek ye first the kingdom of Yahweh and his righteousness, Yahshua said in Matthew 6.33. Well, the Bible student knows about hundreds of references to Yahshua's second coming in the scriptures, in the New Testament. To be be exact, 318 New Testament prophecies relate to Yahshua's return. In his Olivet Prophecy of Matthew 24, Yahshua says wars will increase as well as famines, diseases, pestilence. We've all gone through the COVID thing. Massive earthquakes and possibly meteors. This all proves the veracity of the Bible because we're seeing it happening right now in our world. Now, he didn't say this because this would be the natural thing going on. He said it because this is going to be extraordinary. We're going to see more and more of this. It proves the veracity of what the Bible says prophesies. He then zeroes in on the temperament and character of people. We've seen that kind of change in the last few years, haven't we? And that, to me, is the most revealing sign of of the end. With our declining culture, the moral underpinnings are disappearing. Natural restraints, holding back, bad behavior, are also disappearing. So we're becoming a culture of Hostility, anger, people upset over everything, it seems, lawlessness and danger. It's all prophesied in the Word. Churchianity is in a free fall, and masses are turning away from the Bible in droves. What's wrong? Where's Elia? Well, Eliah's here. The apostle warned in Second Timothy three, two, of the decline in the temperament of people. This know also that in the last days, perilous, meaning distressing times, shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Fond of self in the Greek. Boy, what drives most people today? It's self. Self. Everything about me. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Unthankful, unholy. Without natural affection, meaning inhuman behavior. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. They don't like the good. Those who go back to the truce of scripture, perhaps. They don't like that. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of Elohim. People are turning inward, as we see in this world. Placing self as the top priority. If it satisfies me, then I'm for it. If it's for me, I'm for it. I don't care what it's for you. If it's for me, that's what I'm for. In politics, they look for the candidate who claims he will give them what they want, what they desire. Gain with no pain. Sin, as we know, is the root of all evil. Every crime, every immoral act, all heartache, all suffering, all maliciousness, every hateful attitude, self-obsession, and all that destroys lives comes from sin. Sin. We had a billboard one time. I believe Brother Bannock uh, was the impetus behind it. Everything is bad as a result of sin. Sin. Something like that. I forgot just how it read, but that's the gist of it. And it's true. It's true. What we suffer today stems from sin in the human heart. If this doesn't also confirm the accuracy of prophecy, what does? We believers find ourselves standing in the gap, holding on to the truth, to the scriptures, and its fundamental morality in our world that needs it more than anything. I don't know whether we grasp just how important the truth we teach really is to this world, to Yahweh's plan, to the plan of salvation. I don't think we really grasp it. It's no accident that our message dovetails with end-time prophecy. Yahshua said in Matthew 24, 14, And this good news of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. See, the kingdom message has to go out before Yahshua comes. He's going to give everybody a chance. Those who are being called. He's going to give them a chance to learn the truth of what's coming. And his kingdom is going to be set up on this earth. It's going to be a witness first. He gives them a chance. That the truth of the sacred name has come to the fore just maybe in the last 40 years is another Another prophetic confirmation that we're in the last days. We're like the two witnesses standing out there. Now, we're not in Jerusalem, but we're, we're out there on the forefront, on the cutting edge. Someone once says the cutting edge is a bleeding edge, and they certainly had that right. Of all the many who contact YRM, few ever question the veracity of Yahweh's name. That wasn't the case only a few decades ago. It wasn't the case when Yahweh's name wasn't so well known, and they would ask, what is that? Where do you get that name? The outreach of the sacred name groups had a big part in bringing this truth to the world. I have to believe it. In our national outreach through Discover the Truth TV, through one of the largest religious websites on the Internet, and many hundreds of thousands of our video views, taking place worldwide, not to mention believers, making a difference, teaching the truth on social media. You're doing your part. Proclaiming the Eliah message in these last days. It's having a powerful impact, so much that the Roman Catholic Pope said he doesn't want the name being sung or prayed about or prayed into or, or prayed uh, using it. He, he didn't want that anymore. The name is powerful. The message is powerful. We never gave up preaching and teaching the word in season or out of season. And it's only, not just the holy names that set us apart from nominal teachings. Jude 1.3 also warns about renegade teachings. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you, that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. There is the key. The message of truth that was once delivered that's been lost and needs to come back. Why would he tell us to go back to the original teachings if those doctrines have been faithfully carried forth? Most Bible believers are hoodwinked to believe doctrines and creeds that Developed in the first few hundred years after Yasha were legitimate because they were church sanctioned. They were, they were hashed out in church councils. So they got to be right. These guys were, these were church men. They knew. Well, you can also be deceived no matter who you are. Jude says that salvation hinges on the original truths the faith once delivered. And that's what Yahweh's people must stand on today. They've got to stand on that faith. A key that unlocks what we're all about and the message we teach is found in the prophet Elijah, Through what he represented and what his mission was. Our ministry directly mirrors his mission. I have to believe that. Today's nominal teachings have missed the simplest of truths. To show what I'm talking about, just go up here to the road. Up here, uh, ask passerbys, what, what's sin. What is sin? According to the one who defines it, what you'll get from the man on the street or even from ministers is that sin is not meeting Yahweh's standard or wrongdoing or impiety or unbelief or darkness as opposed to light or a falling away and a host of such generalities that don't help anyone identify sin so they can overcome it. It's just a, vague, just a vague cloud. They can't grasp what it really is. They just, well, you know, I know it when I see it. Well, then what is it? Well, another fuzzy generalities comes out. Leaving sin to however you define it. Typically, platitudes and cliches that nibble around the edges but don't get to the core meaning of what sin actually is. A wise general once said, if you don't know your enemy, you can't defeat it. Yahweh made sure that the enemy is very simple to understand, very clear, no nonsense. Anyone can grasp it. His straightforward description is found in 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Only seven words. Tell us plainly what sin is. Ah, but you see, there's the rub. Because, hey, we don't like the law. So we could wipe that part out and make up the rest of it ourselves. Romans 3.23 and 5.12 say, Everyone has done it. All have sinned. But the law was abolished at the cross, they say. Here's the paradox. How can everyone be sinful if the law has been done away? How can they be sinners if the standard defining defining sin no longer exists? If there are no traffic laws, I can drive any way I want. I can be as perilous and death-defying as I want to be out there on the highway. Because there's no law that says I can't. If the Bible's definition of sin isn't truth, I don't know what is. We find how we come to salvation. It shows how we can walk in Yahshua's footsteps and follow his example. It all hinges on our obedience to the word, our obedience to what Yahshua taught. That's all we're trying to do. 1 John 3, 5 goes on to say that Yahshua had no sin. That means he was a perfect law keeper. But my minister tells me he nailed the law to the cross. They all say, that's another contradiction. As Matthew 5, 17 quotes Joshua saying emphatically, think not, don't think, that I have come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, why did he say that back then? Because people were saying the same thing. Oh, you did away with the law. Pharisees thought he did away with the law. Uh Uh-uh. They just didn't get it. They didn't get his applications of the law. Fulfill doesn't mean abolish. Why? Read the next sentence. For I verily say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, smallest element of the law shall in no wise pass from the law till it's all fulfilled. So there it is. There's a hyperbolic proof. Long as heaven and earth are here, so is the law. I think they're here. I look out the window, I can see earth. So what bigger proof can there be? Well, let's continue our interview with a man on the street up there. If you ask, which of the Ten Commandments is violated the most often? What do you think they'll say? What would you say? Which one do people break the most? Uh, lying? Stealing? Coveting? How about the Sabbath? Oh, not that one, the Sabbath. Hey, I doubt that anybody would respond to that because most don't even know that the seventh day is a commandment in the scriptures. So they won't use that one. So we'll help out our clueless individual on the street. The commandment broken far more than any other is the first one, the very first one that defines all the rest you shall have no other mighty ones before me. What do you mean? I don't worship idols. You don't have to be out there bowing to Buddha, visiting Vishnu, or being captivated by Chris Kringle. Anytime you put anything before Yahweh, anything, you idolize a priority, whether it's your job, whether it's your family, finances, a hobby, entertainment, Anything, ultimately yourself. If any of these things takes precedent over your worship of Yahweh, in your life, by taking you away from him and away from his worship, you're breaking the first commandment. Think about it. Each can be an idol if it takes precedence, primacy over Yahweh and what he requires. The commandment says not to serve these things Serve is abad in the Hebrew, and as a verb, it can mean to enslave. Enslave. We're not to be enslaved by anything that takes us away from serving Yahweh. By anything that robs our time and our worship of him. You know, in so many different ways, the first commandment is broken every day. Many times a day. Every commandment you violate also breaks the first one. you break one, you really break two, because every sin takes us away from Yahweh. Let's go back to the prophet and his message. Eliyahu was the first major prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. (coughs) These ten tribes needed his message like they needed oxygen. They were constantly going off the rails. Every king they had was bad, because Yahweh never sanctified those ten tribes, leaving Even uh, Judah and Benjamin. He never wanted that to happen. So in in a way they were cursed. They were constantly going the wrong direction. Elia is a Hebrew name that means my El is Yah. His name embodies, embodies who Yahweh is. And embodies the first commandment. And so did his most memorable action. His message to be proclaimed at the end of the age is, Yahweh is the mighty one of this universe. That's the Elia message. He has a personal name packed full of salvational meaning. He doesn't have many names. He has one. Another crystal clear statement, just like the definition of sin, is found in Isaiah 42.8. I am Yahweh, that is my name and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Pretty easy to understand, isn't it? I'm Yahweh. That's my name. You can't misinterpret that. How are you going to twist that one up? Simple declaration. You can't shoehorn another name or another title in there somewhere. doesn't fit. Yahweh's plain, simple, clear declarative statement is, I am Yahweh. That's my name we have dozens of scholarly references downstairs in the library. You want to go down and check them out? Be my guest. That verify his name is Yahweh. In my research, I've never come across a variant like Yavo, Yahava, Yahovah, Yahove. I never find that anywhere in these scholarly references. How come? Don't these guys know there's lots of different Names for Yahweh? Don't they know that that's Yahweh's not really his name? It's it's some kind of crazy variant or any other peculiarity, any other proxy that some like to use and adamantly support it over his name. We get it every day. We get it every day when they write to us to know exactly how YRM fits into it, the Eliah message. Let's look at the focus of Eliah's mission. In 1 Kings 18.21, the prophet engages false worship on Mount Carmel, and you, I'm sure you all remember this thing. Israel was playing both sides with the truth as well as error, and mostly error, and our prophet asked Israel, how long are you going to vacillate? How long are you going to play around between two opinions? If Yahweh be Elohim, follow him. Now, If Baal is Elohim, go ahead, be my guest, follow him. No sleight of hand, no prevaricating. Find out the one true, mighty one and stay with him. Simple, again, to understand. Open and honest. We see a direct situation today with those who mix in Yahweh's name once in a while with traditional titles. Elia says, stop, stop the horse play. If his name is Yahweh, use it. You don't honor him by inserting heathen titles or anything else. Eliah cries, stop straddling the fence. If you claim to worship Yahweh, the mighty one of the universe, then worship him all the way. Go with him. Don't equivocate. If not, don't. So he gives us demonstration about the, the, the priests there uh, around the altar, the pagan priests, 450 prophets of all trying to. Make fire come down. And they can't do it, and they're slashing themselves. They're going on all morning long with this kind of stuff. Crying out and doing all sorts of crazy things. It wasn't happening. Yahweh wasn't in it. Baal wasn't the true mighty one. When you use another name or title in worship, you invoke a different worship. That's just the bottom line you invoke another worship. A worship that identifies with that name. I am Yahweh, and I will not honor any other one in any other name, in praise, he says. Those who are enlightened swim against the current, and that's to be expected. So did Joshua. Always remember that salvation is what we are living for, and not the approval of the minority or a a majority who don't get it. G-O-D represents a category, a class, a molten image, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, for though there be that are called G-O-Ds, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be G-O-Ds many and lords many, but he adds in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, but to us there is but one Elohim, the Father, of whom... All, all are all things. And we in him, and one master, Yahshua, by whom are all things. Our Savior Yahshua promised that just as John the Baptist came in the power and strength of Elia, another would come, much like John the Baptist, before the Savior's return to this earth. His message will be the same: Yahweh is the true mighty one the true one that we worship and must worship. Call on him, be called by him, and then follow him. We have no other choice. If salvation's our goal, that's just it. We have no other choice. The Elia message is summed up in the meaning of the name Elia. My mighty one is Yah. My El is Yah. His message comprises the fact that his people are called by his name, Yahweh. If my people are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal heal their land, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Being called by his name, we turn from sin and we turn to him and obey him. How many people know the name Yahweh? How many of you hear it, just blow it off, thinking it doesn't matter? Oh, that's just one of his many names. How many deeply honor his name, use his name, and don't deny its importance no matter what the circumstances? How many do that? I'm not talking about us, I'm talking about those outside of us. How many take it to the next level and submit to him in preparation for the millennial rulership in the coming kingdom? I'm afraid too many are still stuck on step one. Would you not agree? Yahshua told the multitudes in Matthew eleven fourteen 14, that if they would just accept John the Baptist, that he would be the Elia prophesied to come, but they didn't. Later in Matthew 14, 3 to 10, we read that Herod had John beheaded. So now we see two problems. The people did not repent at the preaching of John the Baptist, but rejected him as well as his message. In Matthew 3 3, for this is that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make his path straight. It says he was crying, not with tears, he was crying out because people weren't listening. They weren't listening, as one minister said, I wish they'd listened the first time, I wouldn't have to keep repeating myself. Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. He wasn't sobbing. People weren't listening. Yasha said that John came, just as Elijah did, preaching repentance, meaning turn your life around, and obey the true mighty one. But they couldn't. They couldn't get much of anything right. He said in Matthew eleven eighteen that John the Baptist didn't come eating or drinking, that is, fellowshipping with others. So they concluded he must have a demon. And Yasha comes eating and drinking. What they say? He's a glutton and a wine-bibber. You know, sometimes you just can't win. Most don't understand our message either. But Yasha concluded that results will ultimately decide the truth. Wisdom is justified of her children. Wisdom will be justified by its deeds. You'll know them by their fruits. After John's death, Yasha explained to the gathered disciples, Elia is come already. And they knew him not. He's come already and they didn't they didn't recognize it, didn't care. But have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them Matthew seventeen twelve. Problem number two is that they rejected Yahshua as the Messiah. But wait, we're not done with Elias yet. The Elias yet that they're spoken of. There will yet come another Elias at the end of this age, our age, our day. Note what Yasha further said in verse 11 about the important mission of this coming prophet re- revisited. Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. This is after the death of John the Baptist. So there's a third Elias coming along. He's going to restore all things. The only possible explanation is that there will be a third like John the Baptist preparing the way for Yahshua's second coming as John did for Yahshua's first appearance. So now let's connect the dots by going to Malachi 4, 4-6. to 6. A key passage that speaks of us, that's you and me, as we bring the truth to the world is in these latter days, first note, the context in verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the, with the statutes and the judgments. So I went there to Horeb, climbed the mountain, got statutes and judgments from Yahweh. Just as Elia cried out to repent and turn to the true Father in heaven, and as John the Baptist preached repentance, which means turn from sin, We know, just found out what sin was. Transgression of Yahweh's standards, laws. Just as that happened, which means turn from sin and obey the statutes of Yahweh, the prophet Malachi, again, in the end times, for the end times, reminds us of Yahweh's statutes and judgments handed down at Sinai. So with this in mind, note how Malachi then follows up his warning to obey. Behold, I will send you Elia the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. Yahshua agrees with Malachi. Another Elia is clearly defined by both. And what is the mission of this latter-day Elia? Those who preach to return to the faith, the truths once delivered. What is the, uh, what is the mission and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Here comes the third Eliah, preparing the way of Yahshua the second time, just as John the Baptist, the prototype of Elia, prepared for Yahshua's coming the first time by preaching repentance and obedience. That's what it is, out there preaching repentance. Get baptized. Obedience. Obey. Same message now. Same message we have. Is there a connection? The whole context of this fourth chapter of Malachi is about turning back the people to obedience at the end of the age. The prophet begins in verse one of this chapter by telling the people to honor the law, the statutes, the judgments given at Sinai. That is pivotal. And that's the first thing that most throw out. Not only because it's central to the message of the two Elia's, but also because obedience to Yahweh's statutes is a springboard from which he introduces this new Elia in the latter days. Same message. And the key to putting this all together is the transfiguration of Matthew 17.2, uh, where Yahshua takes Peter, James, and John up into a high mountain. There they see a vision, verse 9, of Moses and Elia talking with Yahshua. This is a vision now, remember. Talking about Yahshua and his coming death. But according to Luke 9.31, Peter, James, and John were so tired, they fell asleep. As they often did. At least, like when Yahshua was being uh, taken by the Romans. Well, Peter wakes up and sees the vision with Moses and Elia. And not knowing what had occurred while he was sleeping, he, in typical Peter-esque fashion, spots out the first thing that comes to his mind. Oh, it was sure good to have been here. Let's make three tabernacles for Yahshua, Moses, and Elijah. This vision with the three individuals validates the unity between Yahshua's New Testament message with the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Yahshua said there will be an Elia in these last days, preaching and teaching a return to the truths, to the statutes, once delivered to the saints at Sinai, as we read in Jude 1.3. In reverse of chapter and verse, Malachi 3.1 says this messenger, this Elia will prepare the way before Yahshua returns. Someone has to give the message out. Someone has to preach the truth. Someone has to tell people Yahshua's is coming for a reason. He's coming to set up a kingdom, a message you never hear today. All they talk about is going to heaven, which we don't do. In a reverse, we learn to put, put it back together. So this end-time Elia, which is clearly those who bring the message of repentance and obedience, the same message we have that many don't like to hear, will change hearts by returning to the precepts of the fathers, the Old Testament prophets and patriarchs, that the children will also honor as their example. Given to these, the descendants by this Elijah. If that doesn't happen, brethren, the earth itself will be cursed with total destruction. Joshua said, If you don't preach it, the rocks are going to cry out. The rocks, someone's going to give the message. If I have to make rocks do it, I will. Obedience is the only path to salvation, and disobedience is the sure route to destruction. Joshua said, If it weren't for the elect, the world would be toast. For the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Otherwise, it's all going to blow up. But because his people are here, he's not going to let it happen. People worry about is Oh, is, uh, is, the, is Russia going to bomb the world with nuclear weapons? Uh uh-uh. uh. Why? Because the elect are here, for one thing. Forget Roman traditions. Turn to the truth, first presented by the patriarchs of old. And when things get hot, Yahweh's going to step in to save his elect. I'm not worried about it. The last book of the Old Testament emphasizes that Elia, and specifically the message of honoring and calling on the true Yahweh, would precede the second coming of Yahshua. Brethren, we're fulfilling this role. If it isn't clear, I don't know what can be. We're the third Elijah that Yahshua spoke of because we're preaching the same message. And anyone that does is also an Elia who preaches in Yahweh's name. Matthew 17, 11. And Yahshua answered and said unto them, Elia shall truly first come and restore all things. Bring back the truth of the covenant that all must become part of if they're going to find the keys to everlasting life, the covenant. They will accept Yahshua and teach the laws he taught, the standards of living he taught, the life he taught. Revelation, there's three, three someone says, well, I believe in Yahshua, he's, he's my savior, I don't have to worry about obeying any laws. Write these down and blaze them on your brain. Revelation 12, 17, 14, 12, and 22, 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. There you go. What do I have to do to be saved? Yasha told the young man. Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. The Eliyah at the end of the age and those with him who resist the beast and his system will also face persecution, as did the first Eliyah with Ahab and Jezebel. And as did John the Baptist, the second Elia, murdered by Herod. Yahshua said that his saints would be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endures to the end. Man, it really bothers me when I see people giving up the truth. If you endure to the end, you'll be saved. You've got to stick with it. You can't give it up. You've got to go full force, full forward. He that it shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Mark 13.13, 13, Luke 21.17. In these last days, there must be bold teachings of Yahweh's laws and his weekly and annual Sabbaths, his way of life, or we we'll go out and listen to the rocks, because they'll cry out. The Bible says salvation rests on two key principles. They are that salvation is only through the Son, John 14, 16, and through his name, Acts four twelve, And salvation is given to those that have the Holy Spirit and who obey Yahweh, obey his statutes. And it's not given because they earned it, but because they are found worthy of it by their words and deeds. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, that without Yahweh's Holy Spirit, we are none of his. That's pretty critical, isn't it? We are none of his. How do we get the Holy Spirit? Through the laying on of hands after baptism. The final chapters of, of the Bible all say we must have both Yahshua and obey Yahweh for salvation. What are those verses again? Do you remember? Revelation 12, 17, 14, 12, and twenty two, fourteen. That's the end of the Bible. I mean, that that is the ultimate. That that is the the final say in what is salvation and how to get it. I mean, you can go to, you know, they want to throw out the Old Testament, go ahead. You want to throw out Paul? Well, look at the end. Better look at the very end verses and what they say. You have to have both Yahshua and Obey Yahweh for salvation. They come as a package. Faith and obedience are not mutually exclusive. We go nowhere without obedience. Yahshua obeyed and he is our example. He is the key. Do what he did. Do as he taught. And as a ministry, teach what he taught. Carry forth his words, not ours. Our words don't matter. They have to rest on his words. Don't twist Paul's writings into a new faith. Just teach what Yahshua taught. Again, simple. It's just simple. A fourth grader could understand it. Third grader could understand it. Revelation tells us that Yahweh's people will be sealed with his name and given protection once they have accepted his sovereignty and taken hold of his covenant. I have no fear. If I'm sealed, I don't have any fear. I don't have any fear what man can do to me anyway. How do we fit into and fulfill the Eliah who was was to come? Well, number one, nearly unknown by the world, Eliah suddenly emerged almost covertly as a prophet. All of a sudden, we see him pop up to steer Israel from the brink of disaster. And we are also virtually unknown by the world. This man of Yahweh stood alone against 450 prophets of a pagan deity called Baal. We, with our teachings, stand against the many Bible-challenged church traditions that simply are not there. It's worthless observing them because they're not in Scripture. The altar he used had been broken down and abandoned and had to be rebuilt, symbolizing the abandonment of truth today that has to be rebuilt before Yahshua returns. Elio's challenge, how long limp you between two opinions, between two worship practices? 1 Kings 18.21. We ask how long will nominal worship bow to the world and not finally stand up for the word? Transfiguration represented unity among Yahshua. The law in the Old Testament, Matthew 17.2. Moses typifies the law, and Eliyah represents the prophet. So here we see unity with Yahshua in the Old Testament, not his abolishment of it. So brethren, I guess the message today is, all in all, is be a rock. Be a rock, stay strong, stay the course, and finish the task set before you. Don't let trials, small things, or even great things pull you away from Yahweh. Stay strong with it. It's our only opportunity. When you're tested and wonder where Yahweh is, remember that the teacher is always silent during the test. I hope this message will encourage you and maybe give you a little more understanding about the mission that Yahweh's people have today. May Yahweh bless you.